I was so glad that the gospel reading uh, for today fell on Luke chapter 10. Now, you only heard part of it, the prelude. And if Anna had read the entire text from the lectionary today, you would have heard the greatest story ever told, or at least one of the two greatest stories ever told. The prodigal son parable in Luke 15 is the other one. Its depths are impossible to reach. But the story in Luke chapter 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. What you heard read today is the reason that that epic tale was told in the first place. And you know the story. A traveler is on that infamously dangerous Jericho road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among robbers. He is beaten, left for dead. A priest happens who is quickly followed by a temple worker or what some translations call a Levite. These were the religious professionals of Jesus' day. Think of a priest as a church pastor. He's got a little clergy decal on his car. The temple assistant is an associate minister, maybe the minister of music, maybe a church administrator. These are good church people. And what do they do when they see the man in distress? Don't say nothing, because they did something. They pass by on the other side. They get as far away from this injured man as is possible. And they did that because they were good law-abiding citizens. It's true. To touch a bleeding man, a man with an open wound, to touch a dead body, would have made them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't take that risk. So to keep the law, they don't do what is right. And they pass by on the other side. Then arrives this Samaritan, and his arrival is like a dagger through the hearts of Jesus' listeners. And as I've shared before just a few months ago, in fact, when I gave a talk on the story, to the Jews, the Samaritans were the worst. The worst. Social outcasts. Racially impure, religious heretics. But it is this pariah, this social jokes and their ethnic slurs who turns out to be the hero. And as I've said often, it's like Jesus crashing a rally of the Ku Klux Klan and giving a speech about the greatness of Martin Luther King Jr. It is that bold of a story. It is that radical of a story that Jesus would turn someone that was hated into while the good church folks go about their way and don't do what is right. Jesus finishes his story by turning to the man who initiated its telling. And Jesus answers the question of that religious professional. And don't lose the fact that a religious expert asked Jesus the question. They got told the story of which the religious professionals are the goats. And Jesus answers the question of the religious professional with a question. Who was the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. This is not a story to make you stop and help people stranded on the side of the road, necessarily. It's bigger than that. It's not a story about the goodness of the Samaritan or the apathy of the religious. It is a story about how compassion must break all boundaries. How mercy tears down 
all walls and breaks the locks. It's about cultivating a way of life that is bold enough to break the religious rules for the sake of kindness and justice. This is a love story. Now, to the reason I'm so glad this is the text today. Several weeks ago, I finished one of my talks about this very subject to which people say it's all I ever talk about. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And someone came up to me afterwards and asked an important question. How can I love others if I have no love for myself? What a fantastic question. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what if all I have is shame and self-loathing and self-hatred? Now maybe these feelings come from childhood. From regret over what we have done to others, what we have done to ourselves, what others did to us. It is the cumulative weight of living. You live long enough and the mistakes and the guilt can just pile up on you like so many barnacles attached to a ship. Maybe it is exactly as Lewis Meads has said. The three greatest sources of shame in this world are unrelenting culture which demands that you be and act a certain way, unyielding and impossible to please parents, and graceless religion. Any of those three would be enough to set you back a few decades. So this question has been running around in my head for several weeks, and when this text showed itself as the reading for today, I knew I could finally spring it loose. But the truth told, it's a question I've been wrestling with for a long time now. I look out over our world and I see how we treat each other. And how we treat the vulnerable. And there is this conspicuous lack of grace and mercy, most absent at times in those who have heard the gospel the most. And I realize it's not a lack of hearing. It's a lack of practice. And why is there a lack of practice? Because it could be that there is a lack of experience. Those who show the least amount of love, mercy, and kindness to others are those who have not experienced it for themselves. There's a saying in therapy circles, and Anna or Lyle could speak to it with great authority today. Hurt people hurt people. And it's true. But there's a corollary that's equally true. Loved people love people. Those who have a grounded sense of identity, who know that in spite of their failures and their blunders and their regrets, they know that they are beloved of God, they have the capacity to love others. But if all you are filled with is this sense that I'll never be good enough, that I'll never measure up, I really don't deserve to be loved, I shouldn't be forgiven. Or if you have never experienced that unconditional, no strings attached, I'm on your side acceptance. If that is not your experience, you will never be able to give that to someone else. You can only give to others what you have within you to give. And that's the beginning of the answer to this question about loving yourself and the rest of it i think begins here most of us are incapable of accepting the love of god or love from others for that matter 
and thus incapable of sharing boundary-breaking love with others because that real person within us is so completely smothered and buried, we have no idea how to live, we have no idea who we really are, and we have no idea how to accept or grant love to people who need it. A story. A woman is in a coma, and she is dying. And she begins to feel her spirit pull away from her body. She's looking down on the room where she once was. And she flutters up through the ceiling. Reminds me of a John Prine song. What's the name of that John Prine song, Billy? Please don't bury me in the cold, cold ground. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So that's how my mind works. Now I'll have, we'll have to go find that song and sing it. Uh, so she's, she, she flies up through the ceiling. She knows she's going to heaven. She gets to heaven and she hears the voice of God. And this is what God asks her. Who are you? And she answers, I'm the wife of the mayor. And God says, I didn't ask you who you were married to. Who are you? Well, I'm the mother of four children. I didn't ask you whose mother you are. Who are you? Well, I'm a school teacher. I didn't ask what you did for a living. Um, I'm a Christian. I didn't ask what your religion was. On and on this goes. God asking her the same question over and over again. Who are you? And she keeps reaching for answers, but they're all just roles that she's played. She fails the examination, but in an act of grace, God sends her back. And she comes back to her body and she comes back to life and spends the rest of her days trying to answer that question, who am I? And that makes all the difference in the life that she was given, re-given to live. So I'll ask you, who are you? Do you know? Don't be alarmed if you don't have an answer for that. Few of us do. We are so busy coping, <laughs> so busy managing so busy surviving that we haven't had a whole lot of time to figure out the answer to that question. And I know what some of you will say right now. Oh, wait a minute, Ronnie, but, but I am those things. I am a wife. I am a husband. I am a teacher. I am a coach. I'm a parent. I'm a real estate agent. I'm a business owner. That's who I am. No, you're not. You're none of those things. And if you don't believe me, look at how any of those things will change or expire of your life. How many middle-aged men do you know that still wish that they were the quarterback stud on the high school team? <laughs> Am I right? You know them. You work with them. You see them. They're really an obnoxious ass. <laughs> because they peaked at 18 and things ain't got any better for them. Am I telling the truth? They will do anything to capture that glory again because being that quarterback on the field under the Friday night lights was what it was all about. How do I get it back? That's just a role you played, kid. And you can't play that role forever. I could say something similar about middle-aged women. I won't.
If you're an athlete and that's who you are, you're going to get old and be unable to compete. If you're an accountant, that's who you are. One day you're going to lose your mental fortitude. If you're a teacher, budget cuts could take that job. If you're a singer, one day your voice will fall silent. Who are you apart from the roles that you play? And when it comes to relationships from which we reap so much of our identity and our worth, even those fluctuate, your parents will die. Your children will leave home. Glory be to God. Your spouse may grow indifferent, may be unfaithful. The closeness of friends waxes and it wanes. Everything we typically identify with is fleeting. And if these identities collapse or they're taken away from us, we collapse with them, shattering into a million pieces when they go. These are all disguises. They're all masks that we wear. So afraid as we are that the real person beneath all of that would not be accepted because the few times in our lives that we show our real colors and we show our heart for what we really are, usually your heart gets stepped on when that happens. So I won't show the real me. It's been said that there are three people that meet. When you meet somebody for coffee, three of you, three. There's the real you. No one really knows who that is. There is the you that you want that person to see. And then there is the you that person sees. It's no wonder we're all mentally deranged. <laughs> we're playing this game all the time of protecting, guarding, and not letting down our guard to be real people. Making us incapable of receiving real love or giving it to anyone else. Another story for you. My son, Blaze, he leaves tomorrow for basic training. Uh, when he was just a little boy, <laughs> he had this short, but shall we say, very intense season of his life where he wanted to be Buzz Lightyear. He was Buzz Lightyear for Halloween, and he wouldn't give up the costume. He'd get up in the morning, he'd put it on, and he'd go about his old day. It was so cute and fun to infinity and beyond. And it was always fun till it was bath time. You can't be Buzz Lightyear in the bathtub. You cannot wear Buzz Lightyear to the baseball pictures. You cannot be Buzz Lightyear at Aunt Inez's funeral. I mean, this went on and on and on. And any time you took that little costume away from him, he acted as if his world was coming to an end. He was so wrapped up with that costume and everybody could see that it was just a fake and a fraud that the real kid was underneath all of that. The only one who didn't seem to know that was him. Am I describing all of us? <laughs> we put our costume on. We cling to them. We go through life kicking and screaming every time somebody pulls on our hem of our make-believe cape. That imposter that's been masquerading as your outward face has got to go. So that the true you, the you that God so wonderfully and fearfully made, can be you. And let me tell you something about that true you underneath the surface. The real you is far more extraordinary than anything you have imagined in your imagination because the real you was made by God and you're not capable of that. And that's the you that God loves. 
I just don't know if God loves me. Well, He probably doesn't love all that fake stuff you've got. All those defense mechanisms that you're hiding behind. But you, the real you, beneath all of that, He loves you with an inexpressible love that words can't begin to describe. And I think this could be the sticking point for you, for the one who asked this question, for me, for the whole world. We don't know who we really are. We are strangers to ourselves, incapable of showing love to other strangers as we have no way to accept the love of God. So we remain needy and fragile and defensive and angry and we go begging for all of these emotional strokes, constantly needing affirmation, going to all of these measures to maintain this facade of being accepted and we become slaves to the expectations of other people doing and saying things we don't mean to hold on to approval. We don't need wasting time that we don't have. And for what? the fleeting approval of people that are as fractured and screwed up as you are. And the validation lasts for about five minutes. And you've got to start all over again. A final story. My wife, Cindy, is just... And you know this. She's a beautiful person, isn't she? She's just beautiful. See, I could have said something about middle-aged women, but I'm doing this instead. She's caring, she's loyal, she's easy to be with. She is also eager to please. And if you're a person that's eager to please, you will get sucker punched more than once in your life. Right? It's not unique. The most friendly, personal, service-oriented people fall into this trap. They try harder, they do more, they keep extending themselves, and usually it results in getting hurt or getting disappointed, or getting rejected, which leads to all other sorts of problems. And then someone enters your life like me, who is a fixer. Any fixers here? You know fixer is another word for control? Hmm. Well, that's what I do. I want to make things right. I want to make the situation better. I don't want to see anybody that I love suffering. Do you? But what I find out is, over time, you can't fix even the people you love. And most of our fixing the people that we love are actually efforts to try to fix ourselves. Because we can't stand the anxiety of seeing somebody else suffering. So Cindy and I have learned something over the years. The way that many of you that have married a long time, it's the way that you learn something only by living with someone a long time. That as much as we love each other, we still require a love greater than ourselves. We still have to accept this core grace of God to quote the old hymn, that love that will not let me go. So, I have been known to take a tube of Cindy's red lipstick and in great red letters streak the words of the Apostle Paul across the mirror of our bathroom. And one time it remained there for more than a week. And we would just brush our teeth and comb our hair looking through the letters. I prefer Eugene Peterson's grand paraphrase. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. No trouble, 
Not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love. Now, I'm sure you can make a list of things that would appear by most human standards to disqualify you from being loved. Personal failure, crimes committed, boneheaded decisions, alcoholism, divorce, substance abuse, jail time, adultery, dishonesty, selfishness, plain stupidity. Fill in the blank. And the answer to these objections remains the same each time. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can get between you and God's love. So today, you may feel unworthy, but you are not unloved. You might be undeserving, but you are not unloved. You will have times when you feel undone, unnerved, uneasy, unraveled, but never unloved. Unwanted? Unlucky, unqualified, never unloved. If we could get this, if it could seek through our thick-headed skulls, if it could get past our defense mechanisms, if it could seep down into our hearts and to our souls and know that God's love is unstoppable, that God's love is for us just as we were made. It wouldn't just change us. It would genuinely change the world. Because then there might be a group of people capable of extending that same kind of love and grace to others. Do this, Jesus said, and you will live.